Welcome to Morning Commute, navigating the new treatment landscape of Alzheimer's disease. In this episode, Worth the Risk? Using Anti-Amyloid Therapies for Alzheimer's Disease. Dr. Marwan Sabah and Dr. Richard Isaacson take a look at the treatment-related side effects associated with some of the newer treatments for Alzheimer's disease with a focus on amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, or ARIA. How do you weigh the risk and benefit for your patients? Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash Alzheimer's 3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Sabah is Vice Chairman for Research in the Department of Neurology at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Isaacson is a preventive neurologist at the Institute for Neurodegenerative Diseases in Boca Raton, Florida. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Sabah will begin our discussion. Hello, I'm Dr. Marwan Sabah, Professor of Neurology and Vice Chair for Research at the Barrow Neurological Institute. Joining me today is my colleague, Dr. Richard Isaacson. Dr. Isaacson, please introduce yourself. Sure. I'm, I'm Dr. Richard Isaacson. I'm a preventive neurologist over at the Institute for Neurodegenerative Diseases in Florida. Uh, I'm uh, focused on the treatment of early Alzheimer's disease, most specifically mild cognitive impairment due to AD, uh, as well as uh, managing uh, and understanding preclinical Alzheimer's and risk reduction for people at risk for Alzheimer's. Marwan, thanks so much for having me today. Thank you. Uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, this podcast. We're going to talk about worth the risk using anti-amyloid therapies for Alzheimer's disease. So uh, in the last two podcasts, we discussed advances for uh, in screening tools and diagnostic tests, as well as the last, the latest treatments for Alzheimer's disease, including lecanemab, denanemab, and aducanemab. But these and uh, others in the class have some treatment-related side effects. We're going to talk about those today and how clinicians can address the risk-benefit ratios for their patients. And so let's start out by talking about the 800-pound gorilla today. I saw a very, uh, in stat news, uh, a very aggressive negative impression, really kind of uh, talking about a lot about the fear related to the monoclonal antibodies and the risk related to the monoclonal antibodies. So let's talk about uh, your, let's first talk about your surveillance strategy when it comes to drugs like your uh, aducanumab, lecanemab, and denanemab. Can you give me your surveillance strategy first? Sure, so I think it's really important to have open and honest conversations uh, with patients and their caregivers about the potential risks as well as benefits. And, you know, in terms of fair balance, kind of painting a very realistic picture. Um, I think personalizing that information for the person sitting in front of you is key. And, um, you know, we've talked about this a lot more on um, getting uh, better data about the person, meaning genetic data, APOE4 status is a way to, to help personalize that. Um, and, and, you know, even incorporating consent forms that, that include language that um, you know you know really explain these risks uh, and, and give patients uh, the chance to review their family members to discuss. So I think you know before we you know give a drug, we really have to talk about um, the um, the plan around it. Um, you know, open honest conversations, content in, you know verbal verbally discussed content, content given in writing. Uh, and then maybe, a, a, you know, come back to clinic and, and think about it and then come back and we'll talk some more. So I think we've, we've implemented that, um, you know, the consent form um, 
you know, really has a lot of details in there and, and includes statistics. And I don't see too many consent forms like that, but we, we decided to be overly um, uh, informative. Uh, some would say, oh, oh that's scary. Oh, I have a 40% chance of having a, a side effect. Oh, well, but, but then we also include the data that most of the side effects are asymptomatic. So I think addressing the risk versus benefits is critical. Um, you know, we talk about the data and then we can talk about clinical experience. So I work very closely with Dr. Gayatri Devi. Uh, she's based in New York City. Uh, she published a series of cases, uh, I believe it was 27, 28, 29 cases, consecutive series of, of people on anti-amyloid drugs and um, really described the, the clinical experience and, you know, what, what was done, what the outcomes were. And, you know, I think it took 27 or 28 or 29 cases to get the first um, you know, uh, issue with ARIA. And, um, you know, that's, 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 uh, that sounds good, but why does it sound good? It's because we use a very specific strategy and that's just like we used to use the cholinesterase inhibitor, start low and go slow. Rome wasn't built in a day. We've, uh, taken the, the, the tack that why don't we just go a little bit slower until we get more comfort with these drugs. And, you know, the label and the clinical trials suggest or, or really state A or B, and this is how you use it and start at this dose and go at this time frame and do MRIs at these time points. And, you know, generally we're, we're following that, but we're just being a little bit more conservative. And, and in my clinical practice, um, you know, we've treated uh, just a handful of uh, people with two copies of the APOE4 variant. And in those cases, we're even going to be more judicious and more cautious. Um, you know, just as, a, as, an, as an example, um, you know, we talk about um, dose titration, and, and while if, we, if it takes a few months longer to get to a potential maximal dose, may take longer to perceive some sort of disease stabilization or benefit, but that's okay. Is that okay with you? Because it's okay with me as your clinician. Is that okay with the family? And, and every time that we've posed it like this, the family has been in agreements that, it, that it's okay to go slower. And again, this may be more of a concern for people with two copies of the APOE4 variant or maybe one copy. Also depends on the health conditions of the patient. Um, uh, you know, if a person is, is healthy and young, that may be a little bit different. Uh, someone has MCI and earlier stage, maybe you want to be a little more aggressive, although you also have a little bit more time. So I think the dosing um, strategy really has to be tailored for the patient based on all of these um, options. Um, you know, when it comes to um, barriers, um, you know, I, I feel that um, there's a lot of barriers. And, and aside from the logistics and, you know, coming back to clinic in, in certain ways, in certain time frames, it has to be, you know, pretty exact because if you kind of stop coming for a month or two, yeah, you have to in some ways start over with some of the titration or just be a little bit more careful with the titration. But talking very openly and upfrontly about uh, Medicare costs and, and insurance coverage and and you know potential side effects and monitoring and having a, a team available, uh, having a you know a, a, a who to contact. What's this, if you're having a side? If you're having a headache? If you're having some confusion? You're sleepy. Um, there's just a lot of education, a lot of nuance, and a lot of interpersonal communication that has to go on between the patient, the caregiver, the physician, as well as the medical team, our nurse practitioners, our the office staff, um, admin. Um, we all just really have to be aware that if someone who's on an anti-amyloid drug calls and it's a Friday at 4.50, at 4.59 p.m. and the office is about to close, that's not something that can wait until Monday morning. Um, Marwan, any, uh, any other thoughts? Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about the prescribed regimen, but I actually agree with you that I don't do these things casually. I actually have an in-person visit to talk about the risks and the benefits, uh, and I have a dot phrase, dot, dot, dot lecanemab, that builds our widget, uh, I mean, as builds our dot phrase. The reason I do that 
is uh, by the time I'm having that conversation, we've already done the biomarker combination, selected the patient, and you know they have to consider it. Some people have read the internet and got scared. Some people are like, look, I know that the alternative is, is that I'm on a one-way ticket to uh, you know a loss of my existence, uh, and so they're highly motivated. Everybody's a little different in that conversation, and I'm not going to twist their arm. I'm going to say, here are the advantages, the disadvantages, the risks, the benefits, et cetera. And unfortunately, Dr. Google works against us time in and time again. So I do want to tell you that uh, I am selective. But that brings up the next question for you, which is, Richard, how do you pick the patients for the lecanemab? Or we'll just say monoclonal antibodies. But this sure. has changed. As we talked about the biomarkers, we talked about the PET scan, we talked about the CSF, we talked about the fact that we have MABs, but the question that is really in this question, in this conversation is who is eligible and appropriate and reasonable and who is not? So let's, uh, I have a lot to say there, but I'd love your thoughts. Sure. So to me, um, you know, aside from this, the, the slow and steady wins a race part where, where patients and family members have to be zen that, you know, this is not a miracle drug that's going to happen, you know, something where the effects are going to happen overnight, as long as they're okay to go slow. Um, it really, to me, um, the, the biggest bang for the buck is going to be people in the earliest phases of mild cognitive impairment. Um, I really believe um, that people at the earliest phases may be more likely to benefit. Um, is that because they have less tau? Is that because of age? Is that because I think that's a little complicated um, not not really certain yet, but I I really um, we've prioritized the use of these drugs in the people with with um, mild cognitive impairment and the earlier phases of mild cognitive impairment. When people um, are in the earlier stages of dementia, and, and we certainly have used these drugs, I would say less so, but but use these drugs in the earliest you know mild Alzheimer's phase. And there's a lot of you know gray area. There's different scales that we can use in different you know terminology and semantics here. Uh, but I, I would say there's certainly um, evidence from my clinical impression of, of some stabilization. But, um, you know, I, I would just say that people that are more advanced um, in the progression, especially, you know, people with moderate to severe, uh, these drugs generally have not either been studied or not been shown to be effective. So, you know, who do we choose? I think, you know, gestalt-wise, we choose people at the earlier phase of, of the cognitive decline progression. Does that kind of go with your um, strategy so far? Yes, uh, but I, I tend to lean toward being regimented. Uh, first thing is they have to have amyloid. Uh, so the reason I say that is 50% of people with mild cognitive impairment, according to the literature, don't have amyloid in their brain. So that's they're off the list. Yeah. They cannot have a pacemaker. Pacemakers are an absolute exclusion, particularly non-MRI compatible, which is most pacemakers, non-MRI, because safety concerns cannot be adjudicated through CAT scans, and therefore they must be able to get an MRI uh, consistently. Uh, I will tell you, and we should talk about this, I am reluctant to give APOE4 homozygotes the monoclonals. I know you're a little different than I in that regard. I'd love to get your perspective on it. Yeah. But the fourth thing that people need to know is, uh, a fourth thing, of course, to your point, Richard, is that uh, severity, if they're mild, very, very mild or mild cognitive impairment, I am giving it. If they're, you know, their mocha's hovering around 14, 15, I'm not giving it. So I have to tell you, we tend to lean toward patients with a mocha above 20. Uh, or, you know, I might finesse it down to 18, 19, depending, 
if I can get a mini mental a little, a little higher, but uh, when they're starting to dip in the mid-teens, I'm not giving those patients. And then the last thing that people don't talk about when we have these podcasts and discussions is the screening MRI. The screening MRI is critical. What people have to understand it is if they have a lot of microhemorrhages on their screening MRI, that is an absolute no. The cutoff is five or less. If they have 10 or more, out. But it's five or less that is critical. And so I actually sit with my radiologist and say, quantify, tell me how many microhemorrhages there are. So I'm very, very selective in my patient use, uh, who I use for the monoclonal antibodies to minimize my risk. Uh, but I'd love your thoughts. What are you are using similar approach and your thought about APOE genotyping? Because uh, my heterozygote and non-carriers know all day long, no problem. But homozygotes, I've been a little, little scared, a little scared yeah. to do it. So happy to share. So I think if, if clinicians think about this in some ways like a funnel, where you first have a clinical diagnosis, MCI, early dementia, then you have the biomarker proven diagnosis, PET scan or CSF or, or both. Again, can use a screening plasma test, but neither of us feel comfortable. And that's just not really where the field is right now to, to make a you know anti-amyloid drug decision based on a blood biomarker. Maybe that'll get we'll get there at some point. Right now we need a gold standard biomarker. Um, and then do the screening MRI, make sure they're they're, you know. Um, eligible and and you know do no harm if they have you know aria e or swelling or aria h you know greater than you know the number that you suggested with with uh with with little bleeds like we just do not want to you know rock the boat and and, and make the ship uh, any more unsteady than it needs to be um so once we get there and then of course we have that discussion about you know risk versus benefits and everyone's on board um you know um we talk about the differential risks based on the genotype and so if I'm thinking, um, I have, we have two patients uh, who are APOE4-4s uh, currently on anti-amyloid therapy. Uh, so not a lot. This is a small sample size. The majority of people in the cohort on anti-amyloid therapy is, is APOE3-4s. So again, this is limited and this is again early days in our field. Uh, the first uh, person uh, that had been put on anti-amyloid drug um, uh, is I would say later in the MCI stage, but not early dementia. Um, he still has a really good job. He's a public speaker, um, and uh, he's been on the drug for over a year. Um, surprisingly to me, same dose, high dose, you know, whatever. Uh, he I think on uh, infusion number eleven or twelve, he ended up having uh, maybe eleven. I'm not sure exactly. Very recently, he had the first. Um, uh, not infusion 11, but after just around a month 11, he had his first um, uh, MRI screening that showed um, vasogenic edema. And that was asymptomatic. I thought it was very interesting because it was, got, the guy was stable. He was doing very well clinically. And in that case, we paused uh, for a little while and the patient and the, his wife made the decision to continue. Um, and we did, and we continued. We we paused again. This is a little unclear. I think there's some nuance here, and there's what the label says, or what the family wants, is what the medical team suggests. So it's a little complicated. But uh, I believe we cut the dose in half, back to five, and then um, he is now um, soon will be getting back to the 10 milligram dose based on them wanting to be. You know, this is a the patient has autonomy, and the family wanted to be as aggressive as possible. He's doing well without side effects. Um, that is the first. Um, patient we treated to my recollection. The most recent patient we've treated um, was, uh, you know, younger, um, very early MCI, uh, you know, less amyloid on the scan in terms of centaloids. And we use a much lower dose. We use three um, milligrams per kilogram. 
maybe 3.5. We did some weight-based adjustment. I'm forgetting exactly what we did. He's a little, little uh, a heavier set guy. Um, and, um, you know, after three months, um, we checked his MRI and we're going to check more frequently. Um, you know, is it every two months, every three months, every four months? Are we really going to wait every six months? I'm not sure that we're going to do that. Um, you know, we're, we're still learning as we go, even though we're comforted by the fact that we're only using three milligrams per kilogram at this time. Um, we're still, he's a heavy set guy. He's getting a larger dose than, than usual. Um, we're just going to monitor more closely. So we're, uh, we're one for two so far with side effects in a, in a APOE 4.4 carrier. Um, but what I can tell you is uh, from a clinical response perspective, both patients have done what I would say better than I would say the average bear. Um, I do feel, uh, and you know, you can look at the studies and say, oh, how did the E4s respond versus not? And that's, you know, those are, you know, post hoc analyses and, you know, not necessarily a priori and confusing, but we've actually seen reasonable results in that small population. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not opposed or scared necessarily, but I've learned to just use lower doses and, um, you know, screen for side effects more frequently. Yeah, so I, I've i been reluctant to give APOE4 homozygotes uh, uh, monoclonals, and we'll come back to that because I have a bunch of patients, at least 12 homozygotes, just sitting there waiting to do something, but I'm really scared to give them the monoclonals because... Three milligrams, three milligrams, what do you think? I have clinical trials, I put them in clinical trials, okay. so that's what I do. That works. Uh, so, you know, I have to tell you, let's talk a little bit about ARIA-E and ARIA-H. Uh, we talked about selecting our patients. Uh, I will say to you, of course, with lecanemab, you have to do an infusion, scheduled MRIs after the fourth or fifth, uh, seventh, and then 14th. I have now uh, done that. Out of 16 patients of mine on lecanemab, two have had ARIA and 14 have not. Uh, in both cases of ARIA-E, my patients were clinically relatively asymptomatic. They felt most of the time fine. One of them I called and he was like, yeah, I'm in part of Iarta. I said, you know, Ivari is like, oh, okay, talk to you later. And he was fine. So uh, I know that uh, they can be asymptomatic. And that's the point here for this audience is that people get scared when they see ARIA because ARIA can look pretty scary. I cannot deny that. And I've I, I'm aging myself when I tell you I was one of the early people to get bapanuzumab. So I've seen ARIA for at least 15, 16, 17 years. Um, but most of the time, it's asymptomatic. 75% of the time, there's no clinical symptoms. Only less than 6% of the time is it significantly symptomatic. Uh, and very few times, you actually have to do anything about it. So uh, what's have you had experience with ARIA? And what have you done with that? Yeah, so my first, I'll never forget my first case of ARIA, which was June of 2006. So I'm dating myself also. Phase two, uh, first person in the state of Florida. Dating yourself there, Jim. Yeah, first, first person in the state of Florida to get bapanuzumab in the phase two study. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. I got the call from the radiologist. He said, Dr. Isaacson. I'm like, who is this? He's like, <laughs> Dr. Isaacson, this is serious. Your patient has what looks to be a Goomba in his head. And I'm like, Goomba, is that like Super Mario Brothers, Super Troopers? Like, what? what is it? I've heard that term. That's a mushroom. He has a mushroom-looking, like, explosion in his head. He needs to go to the emergency room now. So I met him, a really nice guy, and, and, and has a four-year-old child. So, of course, I'm I'm completely out of my sorts. Canceled patients. Met him at the emergency room. Says, hey, Doc, how's it going? Hey, good Yank, good game last night. The Yankees uh, you know, beat, you know, beat the Marlins. Yeah, pretty, pretty good. Um 
so to me, that's how my education about Aria happened. I, I was worried about a catastrophic something. And listen, I also don't want to belittle or like, you know, minimize the importance of Aria and side effects. There are a small number of people, you know, have died in clinical trials on these drugs. And, and that is something that, you know, we, we don't, it's not, it's not joking around. It's not funny. It's, it's serious. But I mean, in the vast majority of cases that I've seen, I've seen asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. Yeah. I've, I've had one case, uh, the mom, uh, this is a, a person in the Clarity AD trial, actually, Lecanemab, uh, mom of an old, old friend of mine who was APOE44 that did get confusion and headaches um, after ARIA. And, um, you know, she ended up leaving the trial um, uh, because of a variety of reasons. But, um, you know, th this is something you need to take seriously, um, but it's not always something that you need to sound the alarm on. And, uh, the immediate alarm, unless you you know examine the patient, talk to the patient, surveil the patient, and then put together an action plan on how to manage afterward. So aria E is most for this audience is vasogenic edema, REH or microhemorrhages. Most of the time, if it's going to be symptomatic, it'll be aria E uh, unless it's a macrohemorrhage. Uh, I will say to you that uh, aria E typically occurs clinically asymptomatic, like I said, 75% of the time asymptomatic. It's usually just monitored by holding the drug and monitoring. Rarely does it have to be admitted. The incidence of aria E with lecanemab is 5% for non-carriers, uh, APOE4 non-carriers, 15% uh, for heterozygotes and 33% for homozygotes. For denaninab, it'll be 12% for non-carriers, 24% for heterozygotes, 44% for uh, uh, homozygotes. So the ARIA rates do differ by the monoclonal antibody, but the point is, is that most of the time you just monitor it, you stop it, you watch it, it resolves by itself, does not need a lot of treatments. In rare circumstances, it needs to be admitted and steroids and all that stuff. I do also want to tell you that radiologically, there is not as good a correlation as you would think. In other words, you can have impressive radiological findings and not have a lot of clinical symptoms. So the clinical symptoms and the radiological symptoms don't always uh, correlate very well. You know, we talk about, I know you started your comments, uh, uh, Richard, uh, uh, kind of talking about the risks and the benefits. Uh, when you talk about ARIA and risks and benefits, do you have anything specific or any pearls you like to say to your patients when you talk about that? Well, I, I think um, I need to make sure, like I, I won't put a patient on an anti-amyloid drug unless we have a, you know, like you need a fire plan in the house with the kids and you say, yeah. okay, okay, what's, okay, if something happens, okay, you go down that stairwell and you go down this and this window, you have to put the sticker on the window. It's the same sort of thing. Like you need to have a plan and a strategy, you knew your patient was in Puerto Vallarta enjoying his life and asymptomatic. Um, and, and that's good because he was asymptomatic, but we're going to talk through those things. If you're on vacation, if you're here, um, we've actually literally had these exact conversations before um, that, yes, it's okay to travel, it's okay to whatever, but we just need to be in contact because if something happens, you know, within the two to three days after the MRI, we'd really like you to, um, you know, be in contact with us. And we try to set a touch point uh, within 48 to 72 hours after that MRI, um, at least a, a, a quick verbal note, um, you know, with people that have been on these drugs for a while, it can be a little easier, but we try to have a, a close the loop mechanism so that if the MRI is okay, you know, we can all be de-stressed and we can all kind of go about our business. So um, we've learned that um, actually exactly like you said, when a patient traveled, 
um, uh, you know, this is over a year ago, we had a little issue. Um, and, and actually in that patient, that patient was on, um, uh, aspirin, 325 milligrams, uh, not Plavix, not another, not an anticoagulant like Coumadin or one of the, the newer, uh, Degabitran or, or whatever doses drugs. Um, how have you dealt with, um, anticoagulants with, with, uh, anti-amyloid drugs? It's funny. I really wanted the conversation before we wrap up to, to go in that direction. Uh, so, uh, uh, the appropriate risk use recommendation for lecanemab was pretty heavy on the no anticoagulation. But when you look, when you split the data and look at antiplatelet versus uh, warfarin-like or other anticoagulants, the data is different. So, antiplatelet therapy has been shown to have no increased risk of aria. In fact, if anything, slightly in decreased risk of aria in lecanemab. I'm only talking about lecanemab. But the anticoagulation, that's the warfarin, the afixaban, et cetera, the data is neutral or slightly increased depending on who you believe. So the AUR would say don't give anybody with a, uh, uh, an, any kind of anticoagulation a, a monoclonal, but the data says something different. So I would give patients with antiplatelet therapy these drugs, but I'm a little, I'm still kind of on the fence about the anticoagulants. Yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, this is, this, we're all learning, you know, we had our first uh, patient on a stable dose of an anti-amyloid drug who had um, an arrhythmia a, a year or two prior and, and every, all the workup was negative. And she ended up having uh, what looked to be a small embolic stroke. Um, you know, this is six months into um, uh, treatment. So the family did not want to stop treatment, which I thought was actually interesting. Uh, and we're now, um, she does not have an arrhythmia. We're going to put in a, you know, another, uh, you know, just going to see another cardiologist, another test. So, you know, I think, I think as we learn and as we, you know, encounter these clinical scenarios, um, I'm not sure what we're going to do with this, with this patient, because the family wants to continue the drug. Uh, but we also don't want her to have a stroke and we don't, we haven't identified the, the reason for the embolic stroke. So I think there's a lot of learning and, 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 you know, there's risks and benefits with every information, with every drug and with every medication. But the take-home point here is we need open lines of communication. We need to um, document, document, document. We need our dot phrases. We need signatures on consent forms. And we need to really um, talk to the entire family and the patient and make a, you know, shared decision-making with a multi-specialty team. Thank you, Richard. And that was great. Uh, so today our discussion was about worth the risk using anti-amyloid therapies for Alzheimer's disease. Today, we talked about uh, selecting the correct patient, uh, using a screening tool uh, to make sure that they don't have a pacemaker, check their APOE genotyping, check their microhemorrhages, make sure that they have amyloid uh, not too severe, et cetera. And then we talked about how we would monitor these patients once they start getting the MARIA, uh, the monoclonal antibodies, particularly in monitoring for REAE and REAH. So this has been a very important conversation. I hope you learned something and thank you for joining us. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash Alzheimer's 3. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.